Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we are talking to American singer-songwriter Jude Cole. So Jude, if you don't remember, in the mid to late 80s into the mid to late 90s, Jude put together a very solid career for himself with releasing four or five very quality albums. There were hits, there were never like huge hits, but there were some hits like this one right here, Baby It's Tonight, and a few others. I always thought he was so great and his talent is so obvious, but for whatever reason, it never quite took over. If I had to equate him with anyone, I'd say he's kind of in that Amy Mann vibe where it's rock music, but it's also a little bit Americana, very much singer songwriter. It's so good. Anyway, 20, 20 or so years ago, he switched directions and he goes into artist development and management. He discovers Lifehouse, they have huge hits. He goes on to manage his friend Kiefer Sutherland, which is interesting, and a few others. In fact, there's a brush, one of his artists have a br has a brush with McCartney in here that is one of the most interesting stories. So, <clears throat> now, he hasn't put out any new music of his own for over 20 years until this year. And he put out two new albums, two in one year. One is all new material called Kudaman. It's a French word. He discusses it in here. It's incredible. He also puts out a covers album called Coolerator of early rock and roll Chuck Berry type stuff. That one is also really good. So we just get to the whole story of like, where do you go? When you're having success, but it's not, you know, huge success, uh, household name kind of success, what do you do? And he successfully kind of pivoted into, into management and now he's back to singer-songwriter. So anyway, we didn't have a ton of time, but I've always really liked and respected Jude, and I thought it'd be interesting to hear his story. So here it is. He called me from his home in Southern California. So for starters, I have to tell you when I became a Jude Cole fan, uh, in the summer of 1990, I'm 17, and I get a job at the Music Land at the Cottonwood Mall in Salt Lake City, where I grew up and where I grew up and where my mom already worked. And, um, you know, when you work in there, you get to man the stereo and decide what the rest of the store has to listen to. And, uh, I fell in love with the uh, view from third street I, I, when we worked there. And so I would, you know, slide in that tape about every shift or so more than once sometimes and make the store enjoy it with me. I didn't last at that job too long because I didn't I actually just wanted to, look at music all day. I didn't want to actually do the work, but anyway, so I fall in love with this tape. I fall in love with Jude Cole, but then years later, I make the connection that you're also the guy that sang back to school. Don't 
And uh, I have to know how that happened. Because if I remember, if I've done the timeline correctly, I think Back to School came out in 86 and your first album came out in 87. So how did you even get the opportunity to write or record that song? You know, when you're a young artist, you can kind of tell when there's a momentum starting to build. Mm-hmm. I had gotten a, a soundtrack through a girlfriend's father, Brooks Arthur, who was uh, doing musical supervision for the film Karate Kid, mm-hmm. whichever one it was. Three hundred three. You were on the three. Part Three soundtrack. And, uh, I wrote this song for that. I was on Warner Brothers. I know um, Linda Perry, mm. uh, who's not the Linda Perry you're thinking of. Oh, different Other, Linda Perry. A Linda Perry who was actually married to Richard Perry, a very nice lady. Mm. Um, she produced that track, and somehow they wanted me. And I'm not—I don't remember or recall exactly why. Mm. Um, but I remember that my name went into a hat <laughs> as the artist. But I didn't write that song. And so I don't, when I look back at my work, I never think about that song because I didn't write it. And um, It was a writer named Mark Jordan and someone else, I can't remember who else, but I remember I went over to Mark Jordan's house and we rehearsed it a couple of times and then I went in and cut it. And at that point, I was really a work for hire still. I hadn't had any records out on my own. And so I did many things, you know, I did a lot of background vocals and I did you know, guitar sessions here and there. I toured for anybody who would have me. And there, there was practically nothing I said no to unless mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So it was a job. <clears throat> and it was okay. kind of okay. one of my early jobs as a solo artist. And I remember my record was finished when the movie came out. And I went uh, with Russ Heidelman to the screening. I think it... I think I, I went with Russ Heidelman in New York to the screening, and it was, I was re- I was remember just going. I had no idea that it was going to be this funny, you know. Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> was hysterical, and uh, at the time, it was a funny movie. I don't know. I like, love that. I still love that movie. It's a I classic. It for many years. You know? Really? Yeah. Yeah, I love it, and I love your song. And I've and when I made the connection later on that the same Jude Cole that I had fallen in love with in the summer of 1990 was the guy who was singing that theme song. It just made me so happy. 
Um, anytime well, I see know, your I was name, still young enough to uh, be, be a little bit of a musical sponge, and I and I, I gotta admit, like looking back on it now, if I hear that song, it's your life, and I'm not. <laughs> I was working with Dwight Twilley, and that's a total Dwight Twilley. Oh, thing. it is. Yes. So I'm very yes. much. Uh, a, a chameleon when it comes to like, if I work with someone long enough, you know, I start of more from like, I have to get, like, I remember when I was doing my solo records, I, I wouldn't allow myself to listen to Bruce Springsteen Ooh. because I would start, you know, I, I'm, sure. I'm from the heartland anyway. Yeah. And those images and everything that he did would be so magnetic. Yes. Me that I, I couldn't, I couldn't even, I, I couldn't see myself through Bruce anymore, you know? So I would be like, you know, I'd have the little no Bruce Springsteen signs in my head. You know? <laughs> During the whole writing of a record, I wouldn't allow myself to listen to him. Oh, that's hilarious. Okay. I have a lot of questions about your early records, but I don't want to skimp on the new ones because that's mainly what we're talking about here. Two albums this year, the first two. Oh, and in- by the way, I'm sorry, John, but by yeah. the way, and, and, and Dwight was doing Elvis. Was he? Well, yeah, it's your life. The That's true. That's true. <laughs> so it's El- It's Dwight doing Elvis and Jude doing Dwight doing Elvis, exactly. all for a Rodney Dangerfield movie. And, and Tom Petty did a little of that back then. That's true. Right. You're they right. They were both shelter artists. Mm-hmm. So I just had to finalize that thought. So <laughs> that is ahead. great. That is great. Okay, two new albums. The first one. Uh, let's talk about. Okay. If I say it the way you say it in the lyrics of one of the songs, it's Kudaman. Is that right? Am I saying it right? Kudaman, yeah. Okay. Now, uh, about half this album appeared on an EP you put out a few years ago. So your career, you go from being this like beloved, probably not a household name, but maybe you know a, a rising cult figure of a singer-songwriter for a while through the 80s and the 90s. And then you sort of disappear and go into management side work and stuff like that for 20 years. Now you're back with these two albums. Why was now the time for Kudaman and Coolerator? The management thing has really slowed down. Uh, mm. COVID has really you know, made house sitters out of most musicians. And um, Jason Wade is the leader of Lifehouse. Mm-hmm. It's his songs, his voice. And he's done very well. He's they've had a tremendous amount of radio success, tremendous amount of touring. And I think he's 40, 41 now. And then and uh he, he's not in a hurry to get out there and do really anything but some one-offs. So my job is really if you go back to the days of us being on the radio and me booking tours, there there were there were constant commercials. Advertisements. There were constant offers that I had contracts and <clears throat> phone calls, negotiations, all that stuff. My life was, uh, I had barely any time for my own children, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, management is a full time job. And so, also, you know, the, the artistic notions that I had, I would kind of keep to myself unless I was collaborating with Jason. If you're going to manage, I think for me, it was easier to put that hat on. And not have this sort of competing, like, what's our manager doing? He's over here trying to be a star. Like, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I don't think it works mm-hmm. for very long. So I, I just put that away. I was eager to put it away anyway. It was being a solo artist and being a mid-level kind of, for lack of a better way to put myself, I wouldn't classify myself as any kind of celebrity or 
mm-hmm. or uh, and I wouldn't con- consider that you know no one knew me and I had some radio success and some successes overall I suppose but um, being a mid-level kind of artist uh, as a solo artist you don't have anybody to sort of laugh at the f- at the sort of struggles with in the van or the bus and you don't have anybody sh- to share the success stories with either uh, so uh, it becomes kind of a a lonely, yeah. lonelier than I realized uh, business. I, I had come from many bands, so mm-hmm. I had seen myself always doing that, but it didn't. So I was kind of eager to get out of it. Okay. And so 21 years, to answer your question finally, Mr. Digression, the digressions today, I took management very seriously and was very successful at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was 21 years. And so it's been... 21 years since I released a record. And now I feel the freedom. Certainly Jason and I have a relationship that's uh, very longstanding and very tight. He understands my artistic notions now Good. too. Um, I've tried to develop some other acts and that's a very, very difficult thing too. Were you, aren't you manage? did you manage uh, Kiefer's musical career? Not his acting career, but his musical career, right? I did. Okay. I did for a time. I, uh, I produced his records. Yeah. I wrote much of his records and I managed him until uh, I didn't. Yeah. Are you, you, I wasn't, I didn't, wasn't prepared to ask this. You say that as if, has there been some kind of falling out or is he just not doing music anymore? Kiefer and I were uh, uh, very close for over three decades. Mm. We don't share the same necessities as we once did, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's it's not the same um, as it was once before, but he's an old friend. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Didn't you guys have something to do with Rocco DeLuca, too? Was that you? Was that you managing him and discovering him? signed Rocco and uh, our label was called Ironworks. We ended up partnering with uh, Universal Republic and we signed Rocco DeLuca and uh, he was one of many artists that we really got behind and uh, it was the the development of artists can be a very futile thing because when you're developing an artist and I I feel like just as much of maybe a an expert on developing artists now as I do on making my own records. Mm -hmm. I've done it for almost nearly as long Mm -hmm. Um, because I never cared for the spotlight. I was always interested in putting other people in that spotlight and then saying, okay, now here's what we do. You know, somebody who's really hungry for, you know, fame and is good in front of the camera. That always interested me because I didn't feel like I really was. It, It was never my, 
I was an artist that probably should have made it in 1973, back mm. before MTV. Good That's point. where my instincts always lied. So I would, I would put everything I had into every artist I worked with. And you know, it's the most difficult thing in the world because an artist, when they have a mentor, and I never did, which probably the hard knocks that I got as an artist, I had to learn my lessons by just my phone calls not being returned anymore. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have somebody to tell me to, to try this or do that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't often work. They don't really want to hear the advice. Mm. And I think they start to resent the advice after a while. Most artists are rebellious by nature. And something else you learn in management is that every guy on the bench can make a three-pointer. Every single guy Mm -hmm. can make a three-pointer every time they shoot Mm -hmm. until it's game time. Mm -hmm. That's where the Kobe's and the Michael Jordan's really separate themselves from the rest of the bench. Because when it's game time, those three-pointers, when you can do that during game time, you're a champion. And, and, you know, you take like the worst guy on the bench – out with his buddies on a Saturday afternoon and he'll make three pointers from any point of the court Mm -hmm. at any time. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we're all good, Mm -hmm. but how many can hit it over the fence? Those are far and few between. True. Those are really far and few between. Fascinating. I'd never thought of that before. Okay. I could go down a million roads on your, just your management alone, but I want to throw, I want to talk about some of the songs on Kudaman because it's really fantastic. You mentioned somewhere, um, I must have read somewhere, that uh, Partners in Time is one of the best songs you think you've ever written. He was waiting at the bus stop in Hollywood at 2 a.m. Drove right by at first, then I circled around again. He was wearing a Sunday suit, a folded kerchief in his pocket. Sitting perfect and polite, like a nightlight in a socket. I said, excuse me, sir, but these buses, well, they don't run this time of night. And if you tell me where you're headed, I could help you with a ride. He said, oh, I didn't know that. And thank you, yes, you can. So I helped him up in my pickup truck, a frail and kind old man, partners in time. Partners in time. Can you give me some direction? Well, that's the first so thing tell us why you feel that way. Well, if I use the word best, I, you know, I probably didn't mean it that way, but I, I would say that Partners in Time is one of the most uh, fulfilling songs I ever wrote because it, it, it was something that actually happened uh-huh. verbatim. And uh-huh. I, was, I was able just to dictate the memory that came back to me. Now, that's happened several times in my life. That's not the only occasion that ever happened. But that particular one was touching because of the way that he was sitting in that bus stop. And then, and the way that he put his hand on mine at the end of the whole ordeal was just, um, it was almost like 
He didn't know where he was. He didn't know where he was going, but he knew he had been saved to some degree. Mm. And he was, it was his way of saying, I don't know much, but thank you. You know, Mm. that was really something when it came back to me, I thought I have to write a song about that. It's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, and the, and the notion of us being partners in time was really, you know, something I saw back then, like how far am I from that? Mm. Now I'm 61. So I'm probably 20 years younger than he was on that day. Mm. Whereas when it happened, I think I was 31. Mm. So that was, you've been hanging on to that story for 30 years, 30 years later, it came back to me in 20, seven years or whatever came back to me and uh well yeah because i as a songwriter now i I really am looking at i think for the early part of your songwriting life you're looking just to write great songs and get Uh you know and and as you get a little more seasoned i think you look to find a reason why why am i writing this song yeah do i need this do i need to write this yeah if i don't need to write it i probably won't write it and even it's some of the most vapid things that you could look at, or your seemingly vapid songs where you think that's the song probably isn't in my life. There's probably mm-hmm. a reason it's on there. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I love it. So one other thing, when I'm listening to Kudaman and Starry Eyes comes on, and I think, what, a, what an odd choice for a cover. Why is Jude doing Starry Eyes? I'm an idiot because I had Hugh Gower from the records on here about a year ago, and I had completely forgotten that I think you replaced him in the records, in the band, right? Hmm. Um, Well, yeah, they had already, yes, they had fired Hugh, and then they were looking for a new guitar player. Yeah. I was in Starry Eyes was on the album before the one you came on. So was that sort of a nod to your past? What made you decide to cover Starry Eyes? John Wicks and I continued to be friends until he died Mm -hmm. just a couple short years ago. He died of pancreatic cancer and he was way too young and he was a very dear gentleman. You know, he was just a wonderful guy. We would get on the phone and it was always at least an hour mainly because he could talk, but uh, (laughs) he was a sweetheart of a gentleman and I loved him dearly. Um, He was always good to me when I was in the records. I was 19 years old Mm -hmm. and he treated me like a little brother. All of them did. Mm 
And, you know, I think there was some skepticism that later in life, like he would come to me and he'd go, dude, I want, I want to do what you're doing, man. What are you doing? Like you, you seem to be working. And I said, John, I, I took it off myself. You know, I'm, I'm focusing on other artists. And he's like, yeah, but I, you know, but he never could abandon that records thing. He just couldn't leave it, you know? So when he died, Oh, so I had told him several times, like, let me take you in and recreate some of this stuff. I think I could probably make a really good, mm-hmm. you know, and I think there was a little part of him that just didn't have faith in that. Like, I, I think maybe because I was the young guitar player in the records and uh, the record that I was on didn't get more attention than the one Hugh was on. The one you was on was Mutt Lang and, mm-hmm. and uh, they had great songs and it was my favorite records record. Yeah. And so I think John had a little bit of doubt as to whether I could really deliver on that front, you know, and, and I, I took no offense to it or anything like that. I was just like, well, if you ever wanted, you know, and he died, you know? Mm-hmm. And so when he died, it's like, I came into my studio and I was just vicariously playing, you know, Phil Brown was the bass player. He also deceased. And so I was just kind of playing the bass part and going, Whoa, Phil was good. It was like, he was uh, really influenced by, McCartney and Bowie and you could kind of hear all his influences in his bass playing and then I tried to emulate the guitars and I was like John had a thing too with his rhythm guitars and then of course Hugh did that iconic line uh, with the with the octaves and the next thing I know I'm recording Starry Eyes mm-hmm. and I'm like well this is really really fun I'm gonna finish this and Good. when I finished it I played it for Will Birch the drummer mm-hmm. uh, and probably the leader of the band and he was he just said, you know, dude, this is amazing. And I'm just so happy you did it. So I had to include it, you know. Good. I have a little niece uh, that sang backgrounds on it. And, mm. and uh, she, she came into the harmonies and, and just kind of nailed it and added a, little, added a little energy to it. Cool. I love it. I love Kudaman. I love every song on there. The Dark is probably my favorite. Hey, gang, it's John. I thought I'd break in here. We haven't done a midsection in a really long time. And since this episode's kind of on the shorter side anyway, I thought, what the heck, let's do it. It's been a while. So a couple of things I wanted to mention. Normally these things come up in some of our recaps, but just wanted to kind of reiterate. First and foremost, as a reminder, we are now a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. And uh, there are several other, many other music, great music-related podcasts as a part of this network. Again, our buddy Brad Page, and I'm in love with that song. Uh, Decibel Geek is on here. Uh, BJ and Rock and Roll, if he ever decides to get back into podcasting, he's on there is my understanding, and a bunch of others. So anyway, check out more of the things on Pantheon if you want. There's a lot of good content on there. Secondly, we're going to go from Pantheon to Patreon. If you would like to be a member of our Patreon community, of course, we would love that. Uh, There are two tiers. The first tier, both of these are set it and forget it basically, but the first tier is $2 a month. That puts you in the running for any and all swag I ever can get my hands on. Uh, You can win CDs. I think pretty much it's been CDs and books maybe, but anything I can ever get my hands on, um, I I throw it out there to everybody. The base level is the tier one, $2 a month, set it and forget it. The second tier is $5 a month. And if you want to donate that, that way I will tell you every interview. I always let everyone know at that tier, every interview I have scheduled. 
And if you are interested in that person and you have some questions for them, this is your chance to submit them to me and I try to work them into my conversation. In fact, just a couple of days ago, I announced that I've locked in a pretty, another pretty big time producer and we should be having that conversation next week. So if you wanna be involved and you wanna find out who that is, join our tier two Patreon, uh, $5 a month, you can be involved and uh, included in all of the conversations. All right, now, thirdly, and this is something that I think most people forget is even there. I forget about it too sometimes. There are still Amazon, there are still t-shirts, I should say, on our Amazon store. Um, it's been a while. I, I'm probably, I think because of COVID, I. During lockdown, I've probably put on too much weight. I don't even know if my t-shirt fits me anymore, but it's out there. So if you want to contribute that way or represent, our buddy Tom Neuerberg sent me a picture recently of him driving with wearing his Hustle t-shirt. I didn't ask him to do that. He just put that on himself. Thank you, Tom. Uh, we would love you to do that. If you go into Amazon and you just type in Hustle Podcast Merch or Hustle Podcast Shirts or whatever, they're all in there. T-shirts, sweatshirts, um, pop sockets, I believe. I don't, I don't even, I haven't looked on there for a while because I bought a bunch of shirts for me and my family and haven't had to do it for a while, but they're there. So if you want to contribute that way, please do buy a t-shirt. It's Christmas. Why not? Right? Now's the time. Um, now I want to get into some reviews. We don't get a lot of reviews anymore. We'll get one or two and then we don't get any for a couple of months and then we get some more. And I always wonder what's behind that. First of all, maybe everyone who loves us has already left us a review. Thank you, everybody who has done that. But um, I'm thinking maybe if I read them off more often, then people would think, oh, that's cool. I want to be a part of that. I don't know. And um, I'm afraid I don't even remember the last where I left off. So I'm going to read the last few. Uh, they're all short. And bless your hearts, they're all five stars. Again, you don't have to do that. I will take the criticism if you want to put in a lower rating and lower score. I respect that. But if you're gonna give us five stars, I will take it and I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. So let me read a few of these. Uh, recently, Patrick Dreviews. Am I saying, I wonder, see, that's the other thing. I wonder if I know these people. Is that Patrick Dupuis, our friend? I don't know, of the EETF podcast. Five stars. Highly recommended, John, oh wow. John is the kindest, most generous, most knowledgeable music podcaster out there. He gets the most fantastic behind the scenes guests you've never heard of and some of the ones you have. Thank you, Patrick. I, that's really sweet. I, either you're trolling me with all those nice words or you really mean it. And I really hope that you do. And I hope, I think we've kind of evolved over the years that we have fewer and fewer artists that nobody knows and more that you probably have heard from but haven't or heard of but it's been a while and even more that are kind of big names so we're trying to cover every base here here's another one sea cheese one i guess five stars thank you john i only stumbled across this podcast through an interview with justin curry of delamitri that's one of our most popular episodes ever and have been entertained by many more shows since then I look forward to going deeper into the catalog. I especially appreciated the Paula Cole and Juliana Hatfield interviews. Thank you. I agree. Those are some of my very favorites too, um, especially Justin and Paula from this year. I thought they were great. So thank you, C. Cheese. Again, I don't know if I know these people. I could be interacting with these people on Twitter and Facebook and not even know it. I don't know. 
All right, here's another one. Sabluski. I'm going to guess that's our friend Jay Sabluski. Love you, Jay. Thanks for all the support all these years. Simply the best. Five stars. Better than all the rest. That's all you got to say. Thank you, Jay. That's it. That's the whole thing. Here's another one. Another short one. Firebird. Firebird 3131. One of my favorites. Five stars. I love the format of the show and the guests are really interesting. In addition, I enjoy listening to the extra deep dives and book club episodes as well. That's really good to know. I've kind of slacked off on some deep dives this year, but book clubs we've amped up. Most of all, I, enjoy, I just enjoy listening to John. <laughs> That's so nice. For lack of a better term, he is real, in quotes, and his passion for music and the people he interviews is obvious. Listening to the show is like spending time with a friend each week. You should give it a listen. Firebird3131, thank you for saying that. That really means a lot to me. Um, I, when I first started, my thinking was no one's going to care about me having a podcast because no one knows who I am. The only thing they're going to care about is if my interviews are any good. So if I can make these interviews really good, the content will speak for itself and people will come. And so when I hear really nice things about me or Yan, our teamwork, the show that we put out every week that we work really hard on, I always think that's above and beyond anything I would have thought of because my thinking was as long as the, con the interview is good, people will find us. And now they find us and they like us and they stick around for us. And that was a layer I had not considered. So thank you anyone and everyone who says nice things like this. I'm going to read one more just because it's also sh super short. Dog, dog. Dowgy Dog, D-A-W-G, 14, uh, five stars, John is fun, <laughs> great guests, John is an enthusiastic presence. See again, that's it, everyone loves the passion, I'm really glad you do. Okay, so let's get back to Jude, a final thank you, and also I hope everyone has a nice Thanksgiving, as I mentioned I think every year, this is my favorite uh, holiday of the year by far, I will say that it has historically been my favorite holiday, largely because it's the time I spend with my family. And my dad always goes really big on Thanksgiving. This is his time to cook and celebrate and decorate the house for Christmas and spend time with all of us. And it is very, very weird not having him here anymore. It already feels different. And you realize those, even the traditions you don't even think of as traditions, but these things that you rely on year after year or whatever to see you through your favorite thing, whether it's going to get a coffee from the same coffee shop every morning or spending Thanksgiving with your family once a year. When it's over, it's hard and it hurts. And that's where we're at now. So anyway, I am still with family. I'm with everybody else, just not with my dad. I also love wax wings. I love the saxophone on that one. It's all wonderful. So Coolerator, uh, a covers album of old 50s and maybe 60s tunes, are you steeped in that kind of music and felt like you could put your own spin on it? What was the motivation for Coolerator? You know, I'll try to make a, a long story short. When I started touring with Moon Martin in 78, I thought I knew 50s music from, you know, whatever, uh, mm -hmm. Blueberry Hill and mm -hmm. the obvious ones, Tutti Frutti, Good Golly Miss Molly whole lot of shaking going on. I thought I knew 50s music fairly well. We we did a lot of it in my youth. I, it was always a favorite of mine. And then I went to New York. And in New York in 1978, they had a, a, a doo-wop station. And I went into my hotel room. I opened up the curtains. And it was like, it was an alley and I, full of fire escapes. 
looked like something out of West Side Story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this doo-wop station is playing. And I think, oh, what a night was on. Mm-hmm. And then I think it went into the charts, Desiree. And I'm listening to this music, and I feel like I've lived before. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I had the most insane sense of deja vu mm-hmm. that I don't, I don't think it's ever been beat. It was something that was so strong that the boys wanted to go out. And I was like, you guys, I'm going to stay in. I wanted to stay in my room and just experience that. Wow. I went back into the 50s and I was in New York and I'm like, my head is spinning. Like, I've, yeah. I've done this. I knew yeah. these songs. So there's always been a real soul connection. Um, there's that and the fact that, you know, when you get into the Fonzie and Sha Na Na and the Malt Shops and the Bill Haley and the Comets and all of this kind of thing. Well, that's certainly a depiction of the 50s from the perspective of suburbia. But there was something much larger going on musically on the street corners with these bands that were maybe, you know, didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Certainly New York, Philadelphia, and New Jersey and places like this that were emulating all of the instruments in the bands, the instruments they didn't have. Mm-hmm. And like always, you know, genius comes out of that. Yeah. And so you've got this doo-wop music, you know, doing the bass parts or, you know, they'd be doing trombones and they'd be uh-huh. emulating all of these things. And I'm just always taken by the soulfulness of it. Really romantic music. Yeah, very. And I wanted to try that. I wanted to see how it was done. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to do that. It really wasn't even that arrogant because I didn't know that I could. So I went in and I tried a few things and there were probably 17 tracks that I recorded and many didn't make it because they, I didn't, I couldn't Mm -hmm. finish the soup. You know, Mm -hmm. it didn't work. (laughs) I did. Oh, what a night. Yeah. That didn't work. I did. uh, I did quite a few others and I was just like, nope. So fine, the fiestas, so fine, but it just didn't have that certain thing. It sounded like a white guy doing a black record. And when it sounded like that to me, um, I didn't like it. Now, consequently, I mean, there's, uh, it hurts to love someone when they don't love you. And that was a song by Guitar Slim. She made me moan And she made me 
That was a very you know black record for the sure. time, um, but I feel like I did it justice. I'm not saying yeah. I did it anywhere near his version, but I was happy with the version. Good, I love it too, and I love your "Only Have Eyes for You" and "Everybody Loves a Winner." Those are both fantastic versions as well. Um, both, at least the versions that are most popular, are also black artists, flamingos and William Bell, and so uh, I think you do them justice. I love it. My love must be a kind of blind love I can't see anyone but you All the stars out tonight I don't know if it's cloudy or bright I only have eyes for you Okay, I have a lot of questions about your career, um, all of it. I am curious. Okay, first and foremost, we I, you may have told this story a billion times, but will you explain Lindsay Pagano, So Bad, the song, and having Paul McCartney sing on that? How did you make that happen? Was Lindsay another one of these artists that you were, you kind of discovered and were going to manage and produce and write for? Were they songs you wrote for yourself and didn't use, and so you gave them to her? How did Paul get in the mix? What happened? Lindsay was a product of of, of me making that shift from artist to management. I decided that I was going to shift gears. I had to. I couldn't swing the bat anymore. At the same. Uh, at the same plate, you know, mm -hmm. like I, 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 I don't feel I struck out, but I wasn't hitting him over the fence either. Mm -hmm. And 
I had two kids and finally decided to try something else. So a very wonderful friend of mine in Nashville, Pat Bunch, who's a songwriter, she came to me one time, we had lunch, and she said, you know, I have a tape and I've been wondering who I should give it to, and I think I should give it to you. And so I took this VHS home to Los Angeles with me and I put it in, and it was a 13-year-old Lindsay singing R-E-S-B-E-C-T at her own birthday party. And I just went, well, now that's ins- it inspired me. I felt like I was listening to a young Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. And so I just started to write some songs and I I then flew Lindsay and her family out to my house in Los Angeles and I had her sing on the tracks. Uh, then I proceeded to shop that tape, mm-hmm. um, got her signed to Warner Brothers. And that was really the beginning of like the production management, like, oh, mm-hmm. there's this new guy and he got this big deal for, you know, this mm-hmm. young artist. Uh, then I got Lifehouse, their record deal on DreamWorks. Did you co-write Hanging on a Mo- Hanging by a Moment? No. No, you didn't. Okay. And, and then after Lifehouse and Lindsay were both kind of set to make the records and uh, re- release them, I had I partnered with Irving Azoff, and and so Lindsay was just uh, almost a can't miss, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which made me very nervous mm-hmm. because she had the head of the, not the record company, but the head of Warner behind her, the Warner Music Group, I should say, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. worldwide. Roger Ames was his name. He was a big fan and he used to carry the CD around in his pocket with no jacket in it. <laughs> and uh, she became the AOL girl. And then Paul McCartney was working across the hall from me. And uh, I wanted to meet him so badly, you know, and I, everyone would scramble out to get his autograph. And I'm just, I I was so passionate about it Mm -hmm. that I thought it's not how I want to meet him. It's not the memory I want. I don't want the memory of me getting his autograph. Right. And consequently, I never got a photo with him and never got an autograph, but I did work there and and became friendly with him for a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, friendly enough to where I asked him if he wouldn't mind maybe adding a vocal on uh, something. If I, if I cut one of his songs and he said, you're going to be here tomorrow. Hmm. Uh, tomorrow was a Sunday. And I said, yes, which I was a total lie. I wasn't going to be there on Sunday. Never work on Sundays. <laughs> and um, he said, well, if you're going to be here tomorrow, I'll, I'll come in. And, and he did his thing. And, and uh, it was very funny because, you know, he's McCartney fucking genius you know mm-hmm. and i'm like i'm trying to produce the session and i think he would he would catch little winds of me trying to interject like my two cents and he'd be like hmm, yeah um let's roll it again you know he's very much <laughs> capable of producing his, his right I, I'm what's just jude obsessed. cole gonna tell me well, I'm obsessive compulsive about my records and, and I'm, I, he's a singer. And I'm, so I kind of know what I want to hear, but on the other hand, it's McCartney. You don't tell McCartney what to do. Right. Right. Um, I, I finally, you know, or I didn't finally, I quickly uh, learned to just sort of let him do his thing. Yeah. And he, he did, he did four or five takes, came in like a total pro, put his little, he had a little Muppet bag. Cause you know, we we're at Ensign and, uh, 
Either somebody must have gave him, a, you know, Kermit the Frog bag, a mother <laughs> bag with some things in it. He put it down in the corner of the room, went into the mic booth and uh, and, and put, gave me four or five vocals. And when he was finished, he said, there's your lot. <laughs> and he was just couldn't have been sweeter. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, um, again, with McCartney. Now, interesting that I was over the moon about like the fact that you literally would have had to pinch me to even like when I met him, forget about his singing record. When I met him, I went out of the parking lot at that evening and cried. Really? It was that meaningful to me. Yeah. Um, It was like meeting some biblical figure. Like you don't meet Paul McCartney. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't meet Queen Elizabeth either. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. you just don't meet these people. Yeah. But he was coming into my room and, uh, very, very nice. Yeah. And it really did hit me. It affected me. That's amazing. Um, and so I took that to the record company thinking they were going to just open the floodgates of promotion. Right. And of course, the American business system being as it is, there was a changing of the guard. Mm-hmm. And New president doesn't want to make the old president look good. Mm-hmm. These kinds of things were happening. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they're looking at me blank face going, um, Jude, listen, I know you think this is a big deal with McCartney singing. And it is, you know, don't get us wrong. It is. But like kids don't care. <laughs> wow. And I remember I'm sitting there now with the management hat on, just looking at them. But I also created the record. So it's hard for me to, you know, turn the desks over and scream up and down like Howard Walter Yetnikoff style, you know, mm-hmm. which I wanted to do. But this marketing director telling me that nobody cared about McCartney being on the record made me positively insane. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, consequently, the record came out and they didn't promote it at all. That is nuts. That is nuts. And the, and the, new, and the new president came to me and said, just make a new record. Almost like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. Don't worry about it. You're still going to have your day. Just make another record. And I tried to convey that to the family, that that's how this works. Mm -hmm. But they got frustrated because Michelle Branch had blown up at Mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. And they blamed, here's the family that I pulled out of Philadelphia and, you know, got a record deal and, and, you know, bless their hearts. They, they, I think they learned their lesson, you know, later they learned like, oh shit, what'd we do? But at the time, they were very frustrated, and I think they blamed me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that happens a lot in the music place. You know, you get these orders from the top, and they don't always transfer well. Mm-hmm. Speaking of songwriting, there's another oddity in your collection that I wanted to ask about. "Everyone's in Love" was co-written with Sarah Allen, who is known for writing some songs with Daryl Hall. Start 
how did you cross paths with Sarah Allen? I can understand co-writing with Daryl, but Sarah seems to be Daryl's like secret weapon. I can't, I've never heard of her working with anyone else. How did you manage this? I really didn't manage that. That was Russ Heidelman. Was it? Yeah. Russ Heidelman lived in Connecticut Mm -hmm. as did Daryl Hall and Sarah Allen and uh, John Oates. They were all friendly. And um, I think Russ was trying to decorate the record with as many reasons to talk about it as possible. Mm -hmm. Probably couldn't, you know, looking back, probably couldn't get Daryl. Um, Daryl was probably like, oh, I don't have time for it or whatever. Uh, John did come and sing on it, which was, I was so grateful for that. Mm -hmm. Eric Weisberg played on it. Mm -hmm. Kenny G played on it. And at the time, Kenny G was only a phenomenon on Oprah. He hadn't become the kind of Muzak guy yet. Right. He was just this, you know, wonder kid, you know, on the, on the saxophone. There was a lot of good, good musicians on the record. I know. Not my you have record. all these legends on your first couple of albums. And I just think, how does Jude manage like Lee Sklar on an album and Tim Pierce and Sarah and uh, E.G. Daly sings back? I love E.G. Daly and her voice. How did you, nothing against you, Jude, but how did you of all people manage to get all these people? Was it Russ Teitelman? No, well, Lee is a beautiful bass player. I mean, just uh, always wanted to work with Lee. Uh-huh. I think um, some of the, you know, I saw Lee's name on Jackson Brown Records and, you know, that kind of, James Taylor. Um, always wanted to work with him. And then when I had the experience of, you know, these are where guys were higher. If you had a, a major label deal, there's no one you really couldn't get. Mm-hmm. If you wanted Jim Keltner to come and play, he's expensive, but you can get him. I think only if they found that it wasn't their style. And that certainly happens too. a session musician will go like, dude, you need to get this guy because this is not my, my thing, whatever. Or maybe if somebody has like an embarrassingly bad name, they'll tell you that it's not their style too, because uh, they don't want to do the record. But for the most part, these guys are works for workers for hire. And they're all very good at what they do. Tim Pierce can just, Tim, Tim can just dial up any sound and play any, kind of which way yeah he's he's just a he's just mad about guitar mm-hmm. and i love people like that i i was a kind of a jerk of all trades you know mm-hmm. and but these guys that mastered the one thing were always really fun to work with and certainly uh jeff Procaro and yeah the Procaros, yes uh, i have some really funny stories about those guys too and it was mm-hmm. just a blast about being able to share them in a room with my music, knowing all the other music they had come from. Incredible. I know. Okay. One of your favorite, one of my favorite songs of yours, I wanted to ask about specifically in case there's an interesting story is low life off of, uh, I don't know why I act this way. Stuck 
Is there any particular story about how low life came to be? I know that's kind of a deep track. Maybe it was just uh, tossed off. I don't know. Low life was probably vicariously written uh, about somebody that I knew at the time, hmm. someone who was of relation to me. And I, I just, I often do that. You know, when I s sit down to write a song, and I don't feel that interesting. I, I, I try to morph into maybe someone else who might be going through something. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where I was at the time. Okay. Okay. There's um, nothing real telling about it other than that. Yeah. No, that's okay. I, uh, that's one of my very favorite Jude Cole songs. I was just curious. Another interesting kind of side note. I know we're coming up short on time, so I'll, I'll try and get through these last couple of questions quickly. Um, there's an Italian lady named Paola Tursi, I believe, who does an Italian version of Time for Letting Go. It's been viewed like a couple million times on YouTube. Mm. So something that we try to dive into very sensitively on here is some of the business side of things. Um, when you, I don't know how else to ask this, hopefully this isn't too insensitive, but when you receive like a royalty statement, is her Italian version of your song one of the bigger mailbox money line items on that? Because we wouldn't know it, but it's obviously really well, big over there. It would be bigger than m many of the foreign royalties. And certainly, you uh -huh. know, in Italy, it would probably be one of the only 
royalty yeah. because okay. they don't really play much American music. Uh, yeah. Italians are pretty strictly Italian. Okay. They have a couple of acts that are English that they'll get behind. Bruce Springsteen's one of them. Uh-huh. Um, they'll get behind a few acts, you know. And then there'll be like other acts that make it in Italy that aren't even that big over here. Pa- Paula was, I think, a, I, I don't know that much about her career. Mm-hmm. They, she asked me to come over there and produce a couple of tracks for her. And so I did that. And uh, that was really fun. It was really mm-hmm. nice to go to Italy and be able to kind of assimilate sure. living in Italy and doing Italian, you know, artists and things. That was really fun for, for a short brief time. But, uh, no, as far as the royalties go, I mean, um, I've been writing since I was 18. Mm-hmm. My catalog isn't as thick as Paul Simon's, but it's pretty <laughs> thick as far as like, and so I don't scour them. Mm-hmm. And certainly the foreign royalties, you just kind of look at the country names sometimes and you'll see mm-hmm. a total or whatever. Okay. But, uh, it's, it's never that significant, really. Okay. I was just curious. It's, such a, it's another one of these oddities, kind of like Lindsay, that is on your resume. And I just wondered what was going what the deal oh, was believe there. me i'd love to i'd love to see what um a paul mccartney statement looks like that would be fun <laughs> Can you, it's, it must have to be delivered in a truck you know? i'm sure it is <laughs> he's got a whole post office not just the mailbox whole post office for those things the forests were so happy when we went to pdf i believe it yes um okay one other totally odd question you worked on, I believe, Pat Simmons' Arcade album, uh, maybe as a session guitarist or something. Do you remember doing anything on the song So Wrong? one of my favorite songs and it's my alarm on my cell phone and so every morning i wake up to so wrong and it drives my wife bananas so is so wrong the pat simmons song yeah so wrong it was a single off of the uh arcade album i see well i'll tell you what happened there i was with billy thorpe in australia Hmm. 21 and uh we were there for Oh God, two months. Hmm. We rehearsed there and then we did a tour of, and he was quite a big star in Australia. And so he being a celebrity in Australia, he would be invited to things if we happen to be in town and Oh, the Doobie brothers were playing that night. So yeah, come on. We got tickets. You guys want to go? The band say, of course I want to go. So I went with him and he came back and he said, look, they want me to get up on stage with them. I don't know really any of their songs. Dude, do you? And I'm like, 
I know all their songs. <laughs> I had, just a couple of years prior, I was in Illinois playing their songs for a living. You know, uh-huh. there was at least seven Doobie Brothers songs in our, uh-huh. in our my cover bands back in Illinois. And so Michael McDonald and Pat Simmons and all those guys mm-hmm. were playing and they called our names out and we went up and here I am playing listen to the music and long train running and one other song, uh, China Grove, mm-hmm. um, with the Doobie brothers. Wow. And they even let me, I think, take one of the solos. And afterwards, Patrick Simmons said, you're really good. Do you mind if I give you a call when we get back to LA? And I said, of course. Mm-hmm. And so he did and I did and I went and played. And I think, um, you know, what they didn't know about me at the time is that I was really not, uh, financially, set by any stretch mm-hmm. you know i was struggling mm-hmm. i didn't have a lot of gear and so when i came to my session i literally brought my telly and my les paul and uh an amp mm. and they i remember the producer john ryan saying is that is that all you got mm-hmm. and i said yeah that's that's my that's my lot mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and i think after the song i played they're like that's that's cool, man. That's cool. They used it. Mm. But I think they knew I wasn't a guy that could play on the whole record, like a Tim Pierce type mm-hmm. kind of guy that can dial up a lot of different sounds and so forth. And that happened to me quite a few times until I started to realize I got to get more gear, man. <laughs> but it was really a nice thing for him to bring me on the record. And it was actually very nice for him to keep the part and, you know, make Yeah. Do you remember what song you played on? Mm. No. Okay. Well, if it's so wrong, I wake up to it every morning. <laughs> have you seen the credits does it say i don't have a hard copy of it i just have it a uh, itunes version I, get, I need to go and see i just know you played on it and i didn't know how much of it i'll have to look yeah 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 pretty cool well um jude i we got through about a third of what i had prepared to talk to you about and but and I'm, and I'm now late for my next one i know i know so I'm sorry to keep you. But anyway, I just want you to know I love you a lot. And I love all the music you've put out there. I wish you made more of it. I'm so grateful for the new stuff. And um, I am excited for people to find it out because I think you're really special. Thank you for Thank chatting you with me. Thank you much. I appreciate that, John. Have a great day and I'll talk to you yep. again soon. All right. There you have it. Jude Cole. I want to close it out with another one of my very favorite Jude Cole songs. This is Tell the Truth. And it's off his third album, Start the Car. This is one of those like uh, mental patient songs or whatever they're called, where you could just put it on a loop over and over and over again for hours. I have been known to do that. I love this song. So, And if you were new to Jude Cole or haven't listened to him for a while or haven't gotten all of the albums, you owe it to yourself to do it. I think they're all great, especially those first four. Now the new ones, Kudaman and Coolerator are also fantastic. Uh, They're available for streaming. Check them out. If you like them, pay for them, whatever you want to do. But pay attention to Jude Cole if you liked what you heard in here because the guy is hugely, hugely talented. And a very special thank you to our listener, Jason Pollack, for helping with this one. He's also a huge Jude fan, and he informed a lot of the content and questions that were involved in this conversation. Now, I am not 100% sure what we're going to go with next week. But I will tell you, the next three weeks are people whose careers or bands in some way or another did really interesting revolutionary things with with synthesizers, okay? Either they merged kind of punk rock and synthesizers in a way that defined new wave, 
or they were kind of a old, uh, not old, classic rock band that, in, that embraced synthesizers for a new lease on life, or they're one of just those great synth duos from the 80s that had a bunch of hits. That's what's coming up the next three weeks. I'm just not 100% sure which order they're going to be in, okay? Now, a huge thanks to our right-hand man, Jan the Man Makevich, for everything. Thank you, buddy, for putting this together. Um, you guys know by now you can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And I just want to say again, a very happy Thanksgiving to everybody. This is my favorite holiday every year because it's just about food, family, football, and fun, I guess. I was going to say relaxing, but that doesn't... That's not alliterative. Anyway, just enjoy your Thanksgiving if that's your thing, all right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.